Hi, and welcome back to The Voice of Healthcare, episode 11 for May 2018. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based here in Nashville, Tennessee. My co-host for The Voice of Healthcare is Dr. Matt Sabolsky. Matt, say hello. Hello, Bradley. Hello, everyone. We've got a great treat today. I'm really excited about today's uh, podcast, Brad. Yeah, this is going to be great. This is going to be really good. Uh, before we get into it with our guest, I uh, want to mention a very special upcoming event, the Voice of Healthcare Summit, taking place Tuesday, August the 7th on the campus of Harvard Medical School at the Martin Conference Center. We've got a phenomenal lineup for this thing. Uh, a lot of people are signing up already. It's really sort of taking on a life of its own. The purpose of the event is to examine the growing intersection between voice technology, more properly referred to as voice-first technology and modern healthcare. And we've got keynotes from Rowena Track, who will be joining us on The Voice of Healthcare in the coming weeks. Uh, she is Global Vice President of Cigna. Alana Shalowitz of Walters Kluwer, uh, Devin Nadar of Boston Children's Hospital. It's a really strong lineup. Check it out by going to www.vohsummit.com. V is in Victor, OHSummit.com. You'll find all the information there and you can get registered as well. Our guest today is Lauren Janney. Lauren, say hello. Hello, and thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So, Lauren, you are Principal Strategist for Lens Strategy. Share with us a little bit about what you do within healthcare and what Lens Strategy does within healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. So Lens Strategy, it's a design consulting studio. We're actually born out of an architecture firm. We launched Lens because we found that sort of the creative methodologies that we were applying to building design um, could also be applied to intangible solutions. So such as new business models, care delivery models, um, process improvements, organizational design. Um, And a little bit about my background, um, sort of always felt like the black sheep wherever I've been. I started undergrad in industrial design and where industrial design is typically thought of as product design, um, I was really focused on systems design, right? So my thesis there was an important export system in sub-Saharan Africa, right? The only tangible Part of my thesis was a shipping container, but the thing I actually designed was the economic system. And I got criticized for that. After undergrad, I moved into the architecture space, um, but again, found myself rather than designing buildings, um, designing new clinical schedules or new care team roles that would help actually reduce the footprint of the building, um, or rather even make the building more affordable or affordable for the client. Um, So I think that this idea of Um, design for me has really been the impetus for creating lens. And rather than subscribing to this notion that design is a singular type of solution like architecture or branding or service design, um, I really subscribe to the notion that design is a methodology that can be applied to various types of solutions. And that methodology most closely follows sort of the, um, the concept of design thinking, right? Where we start by 
um, empathizing um, with the people we're designing for, um, defining the root problems that we're trying to address, um, exploring, iterating on a bunch of ideas, prototyping and testing those ideas, and then socializing those ideas as we roll them out. A lot of your practice and your experience centers around this concept of human-centered design. As somebody who's not from that space, not, not a designer, you know, no one wants, no one's asking me to design anything. <laughs> I'm curious to, I'm always curious to hear designers and people such as yourself describe just the conceptual foundations that they work from. So I just want to ask you, what is human centered design and why does it matter? Sure. I'm glad you asked that question um, because I think that's, that's the key to the design process um, that allows designers to design many different types of solutions, right? Rather than um, building expertise in just building design or toaster design. Um, but to get at your question, human-centered design um, is the design of, you could say, products, services, spaces, businesses, anything you can think of, right? Um, but the key is, is that it's not around um, the information that you as a designer knows or even that the company um, that may be funding the design um, knows it's not around a company or an organization's goals per se or their perspective um, or their requirements, but about around the end users' requirements, their goals, their perspectives, and what they're trying to achieve. Um, and this is so important in healthcare um, because it means that we're designing for providers and for patients and often their families as well. And I think that's a lot of a lot of times missed both in, you know, in the design of spaces and the design of our healthcare processes and the design of our whole delivery system. Um, but human-centered design requires, you know, we get up from behind our desks, right? We get out from the walls of our offices and we conduct immersive research. Um, and by immersive research, I mean spending hours in clinics um, watching staff interact with each other or interact with patients, um, I'd even argue, taking it a step further, that we should be spending um, time out in the communities, watching our end users, not as they're sort of wearing their patient hat, but as they're, um, as they're people living their lives. I think the other important thing to note about human-centered design is it's also brought uh, forward this concept of prototyping, right? So we've got sort of this rigorous research process that's immersive sort of in the communities to understand the values and the motivations of the people we're designing for. But on the testing end, once you've come up with a design, um, that we're actually testing it with end users and gathering behavioral feedback to understand um, how usable the design is um, or the solution is. I think the, the, the last thing that I have to comment about human-centered design, and formally this isn't typically considered human-centered design, but is this idea of co-creation. It's another jargon word, but it essentially means a collaborative design process. And I, I think this is actually even newer, um, a newer concept than human-centered design, but in the sense that you know, this idea of going out and doing research and then coming back to the office or the design studio and crafting a solution and then going back out and testing it, that's, that middle piece of the process now is starting to incorporate, um, in healthcare specifically, providers in the room as we're coming up with solutions and patients in the room as coming up with solutions. And that makes the, the role of the designer, the facilitator, right, of great analysis tools, user research, um, 
you know, brainstorming exercises, um, how to prototype something and less, less of a requirement of an, uh, having to be the expert in um, whatever the specific field is that you're designing for. And so it creates a great collaboration. From your position as a designer and your background and given what you just explained about human-centered design, when you look at voice technology, you know, or voice-first technology, the stuff going on with smart speakers, the stuff going on with voice assistants, you know, the rise of voice user interface design, you know, all these different fields are sort of springing up around this new technology. Maybe share with us the... Uh, maybe one thing about voice technology that you really like from a design standpoint, and then share with us one challenge or something that you think maybe is getting overlooked um, from a human-centered design standpoint with with these voice assistants or uh, smart speakers or, or any aspect of voice technology. First, I'll start with one thing that I really like. Um, I think voice technology brings with it the promise of, um, there's many ways to say it, but sort of, I call it sort of the informalization of healthcare, right? Or the integration of um, healthcare into the lifestyle of patients or people. Sometimes they word it as, you know, a switch from the continuum of care to continuum of wellness. Um, And that's something that over and over again, we find when we're doing user research that healthcare needs to shift from being centralized in these sort of formal, you know, facilities, environments um, to the point of use. And by the point of use, I don't just mean out to urgent cares, you know, in communities or ambulatory care centers. I mean, in the car with, with you as you're driving, you know, going to bed with you at night um, when you're having meals during the day. And I think the only way we can really achieve that is through technology. I think specifically voice technology um, has, you know, can be a great companion, um, you know, health companion to people um, as they're going about their daily lives. Yeah, I, I love the concept of companion when it comes to utilizing voice in healthcare tech. Um, now, when it comes to human-centered design, Lauren, it seems to me that um, voice is this integral piece of that. Um, it's one of the few things that, um, sorry, one of the many things that humans are innately born with, right? This uh, universal ability to hear, uh, read of emotions, use tone, put phonemes into to morphemes, into sentences, into thought. Um, there's no real, I mean, once you're, uh, you have the ability to speak and communicate, uh, there's very few barriers, it seems, uh, for someone to be able to use the technology. Um, when you think about voice tech and you think about human-centered design and you think about the innate ability of humanity's communication style through voice, what comes to mind for you as far as um, where this benefit ultimately lies. With, I think with voice technology and healthcare, we're often thinking about its role, um, that the role that it plays with patients or consu- consumers. And, and I think that there's, you know, like I just said, probably the single most important promise that it can deliver. 
um, I see on a daily basis um, the role it can play in helping remove the burden of work. And I think this might even be a more immediate feature of voice technology, um, but removing the burden of work for our healthcare providers. So, um, you know, it's pretty commonly known we've got um, a workforce issue, right? A demand supply issue in our provider workforce um, where we're short on primary care physicians. Um, we're short on sort of many preventative health providers out there. And, you know, I think in addition to, to that, all the administrative work that providers these days are required to do, sort of the the pressure on increasing throughput through their daily schedule has led to um, this level of burnout. And I think that um, voice technology, when you bring it to the hospital or even the current places that our providers are working, um, can work as a sort of administrative companion to those providers. Um, I read an article the other day talking about you know, the value of voice technology in that industry and healthcare and sort of cited at the top was this idea that virtual nursing assistance, um, things like administrative workflow assistance, um, add up to about $40 billion um, worth of um, revenue, you know, available sort of in that realm. And that's, I think that that voice technology in the hospital. And so, for example, you know, as during a surgery, um, surgeons kind of looking up a code or asking a question, right. And voice technology, being able to answer it right there during the surgery, um, patients as they're in, um, the inpatient room, um, can give, you know, real time feedback, right. And, and request when their meal should be delivered. Right. And that can then, send um, a code or, you know, send a message to, um, to the kitchen and, you know, maybe someday a robot will deliver it that can reduce food waste. But I think there's so much value to it today and sort of remo removing that administrative burden of work that might even, we might even see or that we have the potential to capitalize on before even um, really taking advantage of it you know, out sort of in the world as that patient companion. I love that perspective. Um, a few things. When you mention uh, labor and voice tech and healthcare, especially, it's hard to describe how many practitioners and providers I speak to regularly um, that talk about the burden of their administrative duties, especially in the EMR, uh, after mm -hmm. clinic, after procedures. Um, there's even some great work that the NEJM has done uh, gathering data on how much time physicians and providers, not just physicians, are spending over their own weekends, uh, filling in information into that EMR. Uh, one thing I'm really excited about is an advent of using these voice tools in the patient-provider experience to return emotional connectivity and emotional healing in that moment, whereas there are keywords that the physician and provider says through a visit or a consult um, that the voice tools can automatically uh, record and then uh, transmute into text uh, and put it into the EMR record without the physician having to do that work. Um, that's a masterful thing if we can get there quickly. Uh, a moment ago, you mentioned uh, a positive thing about the voice tech world. And uh, I think you were headed towards giving us maybe some of a negative. Now you pointed to labor 
but perhaps there was another negative that you had in mind that you wanted to share with us and also how uh, human-centered design could modify that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a term that actually comes from the tech world, but the concept of human in the loop. I'm not sure if you guys are, have heard of this or are familiar with it. It's a negative in the sense that I think it's, um, it hasn't expanded. The concept hasn't expanded as widely um, as it needs to um, when talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera. Um, but the concept is that even when designing um, systems that sort of take the burden of work or replace the interaction between a person and another person, there still needs to be that in, in the healthcare realm, there still needs to be that provider or that physician that's integrated into that feedback loop. And I think oftentimes um, these technologies are looked at, you know, um, as sort of a replacement for the provider rather than as a co-pilot or an assistant um, to that provider. And I'll give you a great example of it. Um, And I I think this is sort of that human-centered perspective of, of designing for the capabilities and the limitations that we have as people. So we know that um, machines, right, and robots can more effectively um, sort of outpace our cognitive skills. But, for example, there, um, there's a robot that can more effectively administer, administer anesthesia. And because we don't understand how that robot is achieving that success rate, even if we've seen only 100% accuracy, right, or improvement over an actual anesthesiologist or a person doing the same task, we won't trust that machine. And so we have to look at how the anesthesiologist can work as a co-pilot, right, and have some level or some role in that loop between the machine or the system and the user, um, it gets a little bit sort of Westworldly on us um, in the sense that, you know, the unknown, you know, I think prevents us from, from being, from accepting. I think a lot of that unknown comes when the cognitive capacity of a machine is exceeding our own. I love that uh, comment you just made, Westworldly. I think it's a good uh, metaphor for some of the fear you speak to. Um, throughout don't, don't go spoiling any episodes. I'm only through part of season two. So <laughs> <laughs> throughout, throughout time, throughout human advances, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before. It's a concept that I really like when people bring up, you know, these, these false concepts about the slippery slope and this technology is going to be the end all humans have created amazing innovations over time. I mean, uh, molecular biology, IVF, uh, nuclear uh, energy, cloning, uh, CRISPR now. There's all kinds of uh, electrical and physics advances that people have thrown their hands up in the air and said, this is the big one. We no longer can connect anymore. Even famously, in, in a macabre sense, uh, Ted Kaczynski, in his famous uh, manuscript, uh, descri- you know, described the, the risks of advances in technology. And believe it or not, Tolkien, in his books, even talks about, in a metaphorical sense, a good versus evil, and evil being those who uh, are seeking high tech and power. I, I think the counter argument 
to that fear. And the counter argument to the examples of uh, these narratives I've mentioned are humans have been very, very good at creating systems to protect ourselves uh, and to guide these technologies so that we don't cause mass, you know, death or mass hysteria or chaos. Um, so I think that's something that comes to mind immediately when you talk about uh, those fears is something that's on everyone's mind right now, which is something you mentioned, which is trust, but also uh, can be distilled down to privacy. I think more than ever, we're very much aware of the pitfalls of our online lives and the lack of privacy that we seem to get sometimes and the slips um, that are made in security. So that being the case, what are your thoughts on uh, this technology as it relates to privacy? Well, and it, that's a timely question. I just heard on the news this morning, there's a, a couple um, in outrage with Amazon because Alexa had recorded a private conversation and then sent it to you know, someone on their contact list. Something that's probably you know, a difficult cir- set of circumstances to repeat, but is you know, absolutely um, possible. So, you know, I agree. I think privacy is sort of one of the greatest challenges that we're going to have to overcome. The one thing I will say as sort of a, an early millennial, um, and, and, and certainly from the sort of philosophical perspective, I, I identify with millennials quite a bit and, and this sort of a, a causes some heated discussions with my husband, um, who is certainly not a millennial and myself, Um, But I think millennials are a lot more comfortable um, with a level of privacy that, you know, ensures that they, their information won't be taken advantage of, but otherwise sharing, you know, sharing everything else. And so you, you know, you look at social media and look at social and um, millennials and they're broadcasting, you know, where they are, what they're doing, what they like, what they don't like. And I think from that perspective, um, Privacy is a little bit of a cultural um, issue um, or generational issue that I think is naturally just going to be evolved. And I think from that trust um, or the perception of privacy will change. Um, you know, that said, at the end of the day, you know, there, there's a certain level of privacy that, you know, that will have to be addressed. But I think there's a good chunk of it that's generational. Um, and, 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 you know, as millennials, you know, start to, you know, become greater users of healthcare, which I think is a whole nother conversation, that then we know that that'll sort of phase out. Some of those concerns will phase out a little bit. Thank you for sharing with us all of your insight on this and, and some of your background and, and just giving us this time. I saw, you know, in December last year, you joined the advisory board for the Emergency Medicine Advisory Board at Brigham and Women's Hospital, um, which I think is really interesting and cool. Share with us a little bit here at the end of the show about that and, um, and why that matters to you. Yeah. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, what I'm passionate about is helping people creatively solve problems and, and that, that, you know, teaching everyone that there's a level that they are creative. And I think in the healthcare industry, there's a, there's a whole ton of creativity from the sort of advancement of medicine science 
Um, but in care delivery, I think it's something that oftentimes we lack. And I think a lot of that's just the, the daily, the burden of the daily work, Bring, being that expert in the room um, that can teach people sort of methods for um, connecting with patients, connecting with um, their communities and finding more creative solutions, um, you know, I think are going to be essential to um, advancements and health delivery and care delivery. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for sharing all of this with us, your time and your insight. We greatly appreciate you having, we greatly appreciate having you on the show, Lauren. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you guys in Boston in August. Yeah, I'll echo Bradley on that really special talk today, Lauren. We're really uh, impressed and motivated by the kind of work you're doing, and we appreciate you sharing with us today. Thank you. If you've been listening to this episode, we're going to include all the information to where you can reach out to Lauren or check out Lynn's strategy and learn more about what she and they are doing. Also, don't forget, head over to www.v as in Victor, ohsummit.com to learn more about the Voice of Healthcare Summit coming up this fall for the Voice of Healthcare, episode 11. Thank you for listening, and until next time.